The views and opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of this station, JVC Broadcasting Management, or its sponsors. Welcome to Crime and Justice Radio, where we talk all things crime, justice, mayhem, and the courts with expert insiders and legal outcasts. My name is Aida Lysenring, and I'm here every Monday with Bruce Barquette. How's it going out there in here, Albany? <laughs> here being a relative term, we're together here. on the radio, but separated by a few hundred miles. Uh, Albany's great. We're going to get eight inches of snow up here um, overnight. I can't wait to trudge the court in the um, in eight inches of snow. We'll see how it goes. We have a trial coming up, and we'll do our best. Um, speaking we'll, of trial, and then speaking, we'll have a trial. <laughs> then we'll have a trial. Speaking, hey, so I don't know that it's right to brag a little bit, but it's you got a great or our firm did, but really you did the lion's share of the work. A great ruling today, uh, a suppression of a statement in federal court, which is as rare as hen's teeth, as they say. Uh, so congratulations to you. That's a fantastic result. Great for our firm. I know a lot of people worked on it, but you really did the work on this. So I'm Thank giving you. you a big thumbs up on that. Um, so speaking of trials, um, Polina. Oh, Polina, I thought you were going to go with Murdoch. He wrote. We will. We'll, we'll get to Murdoch because that's a fascinating case. But let's so talk Polina a little bit. Let's do a little local case. little local trials, then we'll do a national trial. Right. Our partner, John Laturco, tried the case of Michael Valva, who is charged with murder in the second degree, depraved indifference for um, killing, being responsible for the death of his eight-year-old special needs son. Tragic case. He was found guilty. A lot of the trial focused on... Um, Miss Polina, who is Michael Valva's wife, were they married? Yes. No, I think they were engaged. Oh, they were engaged. Fiance, yeah. Um, as yeah. as she being the culprit, really being the perpetrator to the murder, insofar responsible for it, insofar as that she initiated these kind of punishment tactics that ultimately led to a practice where the children or two of the sons would be put in a garage. And would have to spend evenings on the floor there because they weren't um, abiding by, uh, you know, potty training rules and they were soiling their pants in their bedroom. So one of the sons, uh, Thomas Valva, died of, well, it's debatable, but hypothermia. Um, One, you know, one expert indicated that he died due to the shock of being placed in a hot shower to undo the possible hypodermia, which is what Michael Valva did. And then um, the government's theory was that he froze to death because the father, he had soiled himself in the garage, took him, dragged him outside, and hosed him off in 19-degree weather, um, causing him to be quite literally frozen until he threw him in the shower. It's a horrific case. Michael Valva was... Uh, convicted and sentenced, I believe, to the maximum. And now his co-defendant, um, his fiance, the woman who I think it is uncontested, um, encouraged, initiated, created these house rules in which the kids were forced to sleep in a cold garage floor, uh, is also now facing her turn at trial to see if she too is guilty of depraved indifference murder. 
Well, look, look. Uh, what the prosecutor said, uh, I guess repeatedly, was she did nothing, nothing to save his life, nothing to stop it. She did nothing. Uh, that's a that's a that's not a great theory for a prosecutor, uh, unless you have custody or 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 are somehow charged with care of a child, which she's his fiance. I'm not sure she had. Maybe they have a theory that because they're living in the same household, she did. Uh, but we have no obligations to go out and save people. So doing nothing is not a crime, except for the Seinfeld episode, the last Seinfeld episode with the um, the if you recall that am I making a joke when I shouldn't be? But if you recall the last, the very last Seinfeld they episode, were on trial they, for all the horrible things they no didn't. no they weren't. On, no, they were on trial because they didn't stop the robbery they observed, and then they put on witnesses for all the horrible things they they did uh, through the course of the series. Uh, but that that theory that you have to intervene to help somebody is not a crime in New York. It's just not. So you can't. And here, it's, it's not just intervening. Sorry to interrupt, but it's not just failure to intervene in what you're watching go down as a murder, but failure to intervene in a depraved indifference murder, which well, is it, even trickier, different. I think. Right, it is. Now, uh, we recall the testimony from um, Thomas Michael Valvis' trial, right? Um, right? And the testimony was that she was the one, as you pointed out, she was the one who insisted that these rules be impl uh, implemented. She was the one who was cruel and harsh with the kids. And he was kind of trying to, push back on it but because of his relationship with her and the fact that she was the one who really controlled the relationship and the kids that it was her rules not his not thomas's that uh ended up uh being employed and at the end of the day she's up in her warm bed in this house and these two kids with autism are lying on a cement floor all night long uh and one of them died she's going to get convicted of something whether or not she gets convicted of murder uh, it remains to be seen. Uh, I, I think the prosecutor would have been better off opening that which she did nothing because doing nothing is not a crime. She would have been better off with opening along the lines of it was her rules. It was her idea. It was what she right. insisted upon. And I'll, I'll, I'll go back to this again. I know I've mentioned it before. Um, this is not discipline. The idea that, that she was disciplining these kids to teach them not to soil themselves is it's simply insane. The kids are um, have special needs. They don't want to soil themselves. They're not doing it like a kid eats cookies when you tell them not to or refuses to turn off the TV. They're doing it because of their, their intellectual disability. And they would love nothing better. They would have loved nothing better than, than to be perfect kids. Like, who wants to soil themselves? It wasn't a discipline instance it wasn't an opportunity for parents to discipline their kids it right. was an opportunity to care for uh, very difficult circumstances um, with kids with autism so um I, I i don't know we'll see what the evidence shows and we'll yeah. cover it again but look I, I will say though that probably among the many defenses i'm sure the defense has lined up one of them is going to be a statement she allegedly made to michael valva which was, what are you doing? He's going to die from hypothemia. And so it'll demonstrate that she knew it was yes. wrong to do that, that she warned him that she was not in agreement with what he was doing. But at that point, he was that, hosing him off outside, right? That was not right. putting in the kids in the garage. That was the hosing him off part. 
Right. But that's what ultimately the government's theory is uh, what caused the child to 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 die of, you know, hypothermia was the fact that he was sprayed down with a hose in 19 degree weather in the winter. Um, And that's what she was telling him not to do. So I agree with you. I think she'll ultimately be convicted of something and punished for something. But despite the fact that these were her rules that she put the pressure on that there was sort of an implicit threat that if he didn't do this and he didn't go along with these rules in her household, that their marriage or their possible marriage was over, that, you know, he'd be kicked out of the house and he wouldn't be able to um, live there, which was sad. He had won custody from his ex, the children's mothers who had lost custody and in, in family court. Uh, uh, the horrible thing she was doing. I know it's a, it's an unbelievable tragedy for the kids. So let's move while we have a few minutes from depraved indifference murder of a child by a parent to absolute potential, absolute intentional homicide blew his kid's brains out with a shotgun. uh, If you believe the prosecutor in, in, in the Alex Murdoch trial. It's in, it's a, first of all, I just want to say everyone I know who's not a lawyer is like, have you been, Following the Murdoch trial, we talked about it way back in the day before it was like a household name. Before it was chic to do so. Before it was cool. Um, Now, you know, everybody's watching it. Everyone's on Twitter. My grandmother, who winters in Aiken, South Carolina, went with (laughs) an employee of hers. They went and they sat in the trial to watch it. She's 92 years old. It's even getting 92 year olds out of the house. Um, so it is exciting. It is interesting. It's televised, which makes it more interesting for people to watch. Um, and it's involving one of the most powerful, wealthiest families um, in the South and a powerful lawyer at that with all sorts of crazy side stories that are probably somewhat related to the crime. But prosecution rested. They put on 61 witnesses. It is uh, largely a circumstantial case. Entirely so, circumstantial. There's no direct well, evidence yeah. at all, right? It's entirely circumstantial. Um, there's no direct evidence, though. I would submit um, the proof that he was present at the scene within five minutes of their death, to me, is close to direct evidence. It's not a witness to the murder, but it's a witness that places him at the scene of the murders within minutes where nobody else seems to be around in this giant property of theirs. So their their case is circumstantial, mostly he, about his and, lies. He lied about not being at the scene. He lied about the length of time he was visiting his mother. He created a false alibi there, told the uh, mother's caretaker, if anyone asks, I've been here for 40 minutes, not 20. Uh, he lied about not having changed his clothing all day. There's a Snapchat video of him that is son, I believe, had posted earlier with his dad getting silly around some tree that's lopsided and he's wearing pants, not shorts. He's wearing a button down, not a crisp, clean T-shirt. Obviously, there's the kind of tricky motive. They found gunshot residue on his raincoat, gunshot residue on his seatbelt, though. But he denies that he had ever seen that raincoat before. He said it's not his coat. 
Well, and supposedly the amount of gunshot residue would also be consistent with grabbing a household gun for protection, for self-defense. That so you've it's used, not, that's been fired before. That he, yeah, the, that I, I think the lie about not being there, because when the police arrived, he lied about when he arrived and lied about his presence at the scene. It was picked up on a on a recording of some sort from the kid, from the kid, one of the phones. And that to me is is just... I think devastating. absolutely devastating. And he didn't tell the tr- tell the truth. He didn't admit that he was there. Uh, I guess in that sense, tell the truth until after he found out there was this tape recording. And then he has this convoluted timeline of being there and somebody must have shown up and done this while just before he arrived, just after he left. It just, to me, well, that's the that's right. the worst piece of evidence for him. The best piece of evidence for him is that these individuals were shot with different guns, right. different long, different long, long guns. guns. And explain to guns. me why that, because to me, just the idea of like, I, I, I don't know if let's assume he's guilty. Was this a heat of the moment, paranoid, drug fueled, you know, instant, uncalculated murder, or was it a calculated murder? And I would say possibly somewhat calculated if a you're using two different guns if b you're already creating false alibis uh minutes within the murder and cleaning yourself up and traveling here he sent all these text messages he made phone calls to business associates between the time that they were killed and the time that he calls 911 about an hour and 20 minutes later um to me that's calculated moves that aren't equal to an extreme emotional disturbance or a psychiatric that's, Right, but that's not his defense. His defense isn't I did it because I freaked out right. or lost my mind or something like that. His defense is I didn't do it. Somebody but else did to it. To bring two guns to long guns and to use separate ones on each individual uh, seems kind of, I, I've never frankly heard of it. And what the defense did today is they put on an expert, a really good expert that I think was featured in the staircase on the side of the defense, that documentary, um, who said that this had to Palm back. Palm back. Palm back yeah. This had to yeah, have been we, committed we, by. You don't remember, but we've worked with him before. But go ahead. Oh, that's right. That's right. This had to have been committed by two different individuals. And he described the kind of close range shooting that would have been done to the second shot of Paul in the back of the head and um, how that would have created such kind of, what do you call it when you shoot off? Spatter. Well, well, spatter, well, brain matter all over the person's clothing. We'll get into the clothing for a minute that there would have been some shock and he would have then had to have picked up the gun and shoot the wife five times. And that, I guess at best it's awkward. Well, I I don't know. Uh, Look, I think that you put your finger on it. If he did this, it was calculated and intentional to the point where as a lawyer, he would have understood that um, two guns would lead investigators to think there were two shooters. Um, so doing that in that way is really was really, is really unbelievable when you think about who he killed. He killed his wife. Okay, people get married, mad at their spouses. I'm not, you know, it's not obviously forgivable in any sense, but it happens. But he killed his son. He killed his son. And not only killed his son, if, if this is true, 
He shot him twice with a shotgun, and the second one essentially blowing the kid's head off. Um, the, one of the last witnesses who showed up was one of uh, Alex's friends who said he went to the kennels, and he couldn't believe it wasn't cleaned up. Uh, oh, it was his that, brother. It was. It was. There was gray matter all over the place. And that pieces had of the skull. Right. Exactly. So, um, here's what's weird. Okay. And then once you start really thinking about this stuff, and you go, "Well, could could he be innocent? Is is this reasonable doubt stuff?" But think about this: if he did shoot his son, and the brain matter went all over the place, as it did, because there's actual proof of that. It would have most definitely close range shot gotten on Alex Murdoch, right? In which case, even if he cleaned his clothes, right, or tossed them somewhere and put on a new T-shirt, new pair of shorts, he still did go visit his mother. He still got in a car and went to his mom. You would think that police would have observed something or that it would have gotten on his clean clothes and they took those clothes and they processed them uh, for evidence and found nothing. So that gives me a little pause, right? Because we don't have a witness. We don't have like a clear cut motive. The motive is kind of wild. Um, well, uh, is there is there a motive? Was there even a motive suggested? Is it somehow a distraction from his financial crimes that he thought that if he, two family members were killed, A, he'd get some kind of insurance and B, uh, there'd be a, a distraction away from the crimes that the well, one of the possible motives I think that was advanced was also that his son uh, and he were being sued for the death of the teenage friend who he had basically killed driving erratically and drunk on his boat. And the lawsuit, the civil case was scheduled for June 10th, three days later and had the potential to reveal his financial problems. So if his son is gone, the case is gone. But well, it's a weird. It's it's still a it weird is. motive. I, I, I saw the um, I saw CNN did a, a a special on this about a week and a half ago, uh, maybe just eight days ago, and they had the video dash cam and and um, uh, police videos from right after the boat accident. Right. And it really was horrific in the descriptions that were being given by the other occupants. That he was driving crazy all over the place. And his demeanor afterwards, um, the kids, was, you know, not what you one would hope. It wasn't sorrow. It wasn't shock. It was almost kind of arrogance and do you know who I am attitude. Uh, really was uh, uh, troubling to say the least. So um, we'll see what happens with Murdoch, the trial. I still can't believe. I mean, look, um, everybody has family members. I have a son. I have children. A lot of people do. I can't imagine for the life of me killing a child that way. I just can't imagine it. I, well, I, it, it to me. And but, but, no, but look, I can, I can imagine. <laughs> not, that I, not that I imagine killing other people, but it's, it's your child it's just inconceivable to me that you know when you have these kinds of murders where parents kill children it's murder suicide the whole family it's just some person who just goes off the deep end doesn't think about it or uh, you know literally goes temporarily or permanently insane kills their children and kills themselves it's not a calculated let me do this 
so that I can hide some financial crime. To me, that's they need more. I would have trouble believing that. I really would. Well, um, another thing that to me is really suspect and is bizarre is that the wife's phone was found a quarter mile away the next afternoon. So whoever killed her presumably took her phone and tossed it, which is a weird thing to do if you're trying to toss the phones when you grab Paul's phone as well. Why just her? He should have, because I think Paul's phone is a recording of his voice (laughs) (laughs) a few minutes before the crime. So that would have been that would have been Alex. That would have been the that would have been the phone the move the phone to throw. Uh, look, these we'll cases see. are fascinating. They're fascinating to watch. Um, the 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 what do we always have to go back to? Right, is that you and I do this. We do this all the time. This is our life. In in a week and a half, we're going to start a trial with four victims, horribly uh, representing client charges for the crime. It'll take four to six weeks to try it. Um, and we've tried, I, I don't know how many murder cases I've tried And thankfully not televised. <laughs> yeah, so it's going to be a federal court. We won't be televised. I've never done a tele- televised trial. I've always objected every single time. I hate cameras in the courtroom. I think it's the worst thing that we can possibly well, do. Speaking um, of trials, we're going to come back and talk prison. And we're going to have Danielle Muscatello talk about who's at our firm, um, this case that she ultimately brought to the firm and discovered of all of these inmates sing sing that have been abused be back in a few minutes welcome back to crime and justice radio my name is aida leisenring i'm here with bruce barquette and uh we are lucky to have danielle muscatello our colleague again wasn't she just on the show like a week ago two weeks ago so cool we're not just like oh we got no guests let's use one of our partners and recycle them (laughs) she was on our show because she had this amazing appeal on a high profile case um involving the alleged murder he was convicted of murdering his dad and attempted murder of his mom and uh she filed like a really amazing appeal that made all the news up there in new york where it was i always say upstate it's actually in the, it's it's right where i am right now it's in the albany area right. right and and now thanks to danielle and i love this about danielle and danielle's like we can go over her resume she graduated from nyu she was in law school with me we graduated together from cardozo she worked at the at the brooklyn county district attorney's office and then she became an appeal master. She got all these convictions overturned in New York State, which is close to impossible. And then Bruce, very intelligently, snagged her. And now she works with us. And So um, why, we, why, why is she on the show again today? Well, here's the one thing I love about <laughs> one of the many things I love about Danielle is a lot of lawyers are jaded and they want to take on easy cases and they don't want more work. But it's often those lawyers that find a case that everyone else might turn down, see the credibility in a client who's not in the position to be credible because he has a conviction or priors, and see that case as a worthy case of a good fight worth fighting for that ends up ultimately being rewarded. And Danielle went to Sing Sing. Were you there on on some other matter and was acquainted with an inmate who began telling her of this horrific day and systematic abuse by corrections officers of all the inmates during 
some kind of you'll you'll explain this, but ultimately uh, you made a case out of this, and now our firm, thanks to you, is uh, suing the correctional facility Sing Sing for gross um, assaults of the helpless and the voiceless prison inmates. So, well, be a little clear, not that you weren't clear with this. Multiple inmates, when I say multiple, I mean dozens of inmates. We represent 26 now, I believe. 26 individuals are part of a lawsuit. Dozens more were injured or assaulted, systematically taken out of their cells, stripped down to their underwear, and beaten by guards in front of the superintendent. Danielle, tell us more. Well, well, let's start with this. Hi guys, I, 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 hey, thanks for the love and thanks for the introduction. Um, but yes, I uh, I represent a young man named, um, well, I represent, uh, represent a young man on appeal um, at uh, who's incarcerated at Sing Sing. Um, I won't get into the details of that case, but he's a real mild-mannered kid, and I, I fully believe he was wrongfully convicted. Um, so I have a close relationship with his family. On November 13th, Sunday night around 9.30, I get a text message from his mom, Gloria. And Gloria says, Miss Danielle, the officers beat Anthony for no reason. And it wasn't just him. They beat a lot of them severely. Can you go see him? And I said, yes, Gloria, I will go see him. And I went up there on November 15th to Sing Sing, and I brought my camera, and I went to see Anthony, and he had a black eye, and he was he was shaken. You know, he's been incarcerated for a while, and he's been through different facility searches. And he said he never quite experienced anything like this, and he described to me um, men in black tactical gear, SWAT gear, with vests that said CERT, which is Correctional Emergency Response Team. And there were also men in fatigues. And he basically just described the entire prison just flooded with these officers. And they just moved down the galleries systematically from cell to cell, targeting different, you know, maybe they do two in a row, make the guy strip down, tell him to face the wall, um, you know, and then just strike them repeatedly, repeatedly beat them drag them down to medical, you know, and you, and you gotta, you gotta figure these cells are small. These guys are defenseless. They're against the wall, right? They're not even looking and they just get a beat down. It's just, it's just wrong on so many levels. And then, and then he tells me, and I think it's like up to like 90 guys, like the medical unit was like overflowing, you know, the special housing building was overflowing. And I said, well, you know, if they want to talk to me, give them my name. And the phone didn't stop. Wow. And uh, and uh, some of these. Sorry, go ahead, Bruce. I was going to say, and this the New York Times wrote a piece about this on Thursday. It was in Thursday's electronic version uh, and then Friday's print version. And they noted that the U.S. Attorney's Office and the FBI are investigating this. Uh, they've conducted some interviews so far. Um, one prisoner. And this is, uh, Danielle, I know that you know this, but one of the prisoners, Vincent Poliandro? Poliandro, yeah, Vinny Poliandro. What happened to him? So, you know, and, and here's a guy, you know, people, uh, one thing I just want to say, you know, a lot, some people hear this story and they're like, well, you know, they're in for something. Vinny Poliandro is an upstate case from Poughkeepsie. He had a drug problem and, um, well, 
he's in for a nonviolent burglary, right? He got 20 years, no other priors, not a violent guy, really mild mannered. They were, they took him out of his cell with his mattress and told him not to move. He passed the screening, no contraband, standing outside of his cell and his eyes followed an item that was tossed out of his cell and he was told not to move. He was warned. His eyes followed an, another item that was thrown out of his cell, his property. His eye, you know, his eyes followed it again. Don't move. We told you not to move. He's handcuffed. He's being walked away from his cell. And one of the officers just said, you know what? Stop. Just stop right there. I've had enough of him. And just maced him. And he was in his underwear and he was barefoot. His whole face was maced, his genitals, you know, his private areas, his skin. He describes just the burning all over. He couldn't see for a week. They wouldn't, they, they didn't let him shower. It's inhumane. And He's, uh, his, his quote in the in New York Times was, every part of my body was burning like nothing I've ever experienced. Yeah. And, you know, people <laughs> like, and, and people go, okay, well, prison's tough, right? And right. think about like, what the criminal justice system does is it protects victims and it gets justice for violent offenders. And as many real victims know, not inmates locked up, but women and men and and the elderly and the young alike, that when you've been beaten a certain way, it's a traumatic event, right? It's a traumatic event that follows you for the rest of your life. I think of myself as tough. One time I came home and my home had been burglarized. I didn't see the guy. I just smelled the cigarette that was wafting away. And I was scared for weeks. I couldn't enter my house thinking that, you know, an intruder might still be there. So and nothing had happened to me. Right. So I can't imagine the kind of trauma that induces other individuals. I read in the New York Times, you'll tell me because this is our, our, our firm's motion. They burned his arm against the radiator. Other people you know, were subjected to punching and kicking and and grabbing and kicking of people's genitals. One guy had his head shoved in a toilet bowl. Brian Johnson. Yep, these are these are these all are... state and I and I took um myself and and Marty Tankliff, <laughs> who was um just really instrumental in helping me with this because of his own experience and knowing the um the regulations of the Department of Corrections and Community Supervision so well. Um he went up there and did some of the interviews with me as well. Um but we hand wrote these statements. We listened to these, these men, we promised them, well. You can't make promises to people, but I you said I will try. You, you promised me you I will try you for visibility, could. visibility and accountability. Um, because you know, look, ever since George, we have George Floyd, we have smartphones, we have body worn cameras, we have videos um, everywhere, and now we're getting more visibility and accountability for the NYPD and for police officers across the country. But you don't have that as much for what happens on the inside, and. You know, if you're going to care about um, people, people bettering themselves and rehabilitation, you got to care about what's in, what's going on inside. Not not only that, just basic humanity that you right. have individuals who have committed a crime. They've been sentenced to prison. Uh, they're locked away. They're in cells. They're separated from their family. They've lost their freedom. It doesn't mean they become less than human. You don't get to beat them that way. Uh, you couldn't if you did it to animals, people would be outraged. If you did it to dogs, 
people would be outraged. Uh, and the, the fact that these officers were doing it to other human beings is it's just despicable on a level that is uh, frightening in, in many respects. And, and I, think, I think the worst part about this is that it was clearly a planned attack. It wasn't a random one officer lost his temper one day because he's working a double shift or one inmate was giving a couple officers a problem and they both, you know, did what they did. This was a, a, a clearly a planned attack on dozens of helpless inmates and they didn't attack them all at once. It wasn't a fair fight. They took them out one at a time with multiple officers and beat them and tortured them. Um, Why? I, exactly what my next question was going to be to Danielle. Do we have any idea what the motive was here? Why did they decide to do this? Well, so we don't know. Um, we've heard various theories. One is that there was some kind of rope or some escape paraphernalia that was discovered. And um, and that, that sort of prompted this. It's called an activation, actually. And they happen across um, state uh, facility, uh, correction facilities across the state. There's actually 21 of these CERT um, groups, these correctional emergency response team units um, that get activated, that go into jails for a certain purpose. For instance, at Auburn in 2021, an officer was slashed from like ear to, you know, his, his the corner of his mouth. And in response to that violent act, CERT was activated to go in and really just assert their authority over the incarcerated men. Here, we don't we don't have a reason. I mean, I hope to during I mean, the course there of like, not that this discover would, it. Not that this reason would justify CERT activation, but is there an allegation that there was contraband found, a a gun, a dangerous instrument? Um, no. And- no, and, and what's so interesting about it, too, is that most of these, well, of, of the men that I know, that I've interviewed, that, that are working with us, they've provided us with cell slips to document the search, and no contraband is found. And not only was no contraband found in their cells, these these men who were beaten, but they were then issued misbehavior reports. So the officers that beat them up while being overseen by high-ranking docs officials then issue these men citations for disobeying orders for violent conduct and then punish them further. So some of our men, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I would say, were some of those infractions, and maybe I'm not using the right term of art, but that's essentially what it is. They write them up for an infraction and then take away if they're found guilty of that infraction. There's no due process. It's not like they get a trial or a jury. They take yeah, they away a, some, some benefit, right? Like maybe it's commissary. Maybe they go in the shoe, the, the special housing unit, whatever it is. But were were any of these deemed unfounded? Yes. Actually, one of, the, one of our clients, a sergeant from Sing Sing, testified at his disciplinary proceeding on his behalf to say that the narrative in the ticket he was issued just didn't happen, which is, wow. pretty, which is pretty significant. Yeah. So I mean, testified against his colleagues and on behalf of one of our clients during this proceeding to see if he committed some kind of wrong. Yes. And that's kind of another layer to all this and that, you know, the buzz, if you will, is that the actual Sing Sing correction officers 
while some of them were certainly involved in what was going on, many of them don't like the fact that these CERT teams came in and just took over the jail, took over the prison, and just began systematically carrying out these assaults. Because that's what it was. It was systematic. They went from one block, top down, one day, to the next block, top down, the next day. Um, so many of the tickets didn't end up going anywhere. Was there a, and I assume there's corroborating uh, medical reports in hospital, were, were any of the individuals hospitalized? I have so far records from, for eight men who went to an outside hospital, as in. Um, Which means it's know. more serious than just like, you know, you may not go to a hospital for a black eye, so you can be punched and kicked and you'll be sore and you'll have a black eye, but that may not warrant going into the hospital. So the fact that there's eight hospital reports is pretty impressive. So far, and it, you know, they're for, for persisting pain to the ribs, persistent pain to the jaw, to the eyes, um, you know, things like that. Places, you know, places where you get, where you get beat, not necessarily fractures, not necessarily, you know, we, we actually do have a guy with a fracture, but um, it was, it was pretty, significant. I, I it's pretty troubling. I, I, I don't, I don't want to say I don't care about the injuries because it, it sounds wrong. I, I, I don't care that some of the injuries weren't so severe. Uh, right. It doesn't lessen the culpability of the guards who engaged in this conduct. What Aida said a few minutes ago about the trauma, it, it, it's true. They didn't beat these people to break bones and permanently injure them. They beat them because they can. And they beat them to teach the inmates, we can do this whenever we want. They beat them to say, you're not human, you're not a person, you don't have any rights, we control you, we own you, we'll do what we want when we want to do it. It wasn't so much of a, as a physical assault, although it was that too. It was a traumatic, humiliating event. They stripped men down to their underwear and they beat them mercilessly yep. and happened to injure some more severely than others. Right. And uh, so one of the ask- things... The million dollar question, because this is what people would would ask me. How much should the government pay for that? You're asking me? I'll I'll, I'll tell you what. This is one of those things where um, would you endure this for X, right? So we're taught how do you ask for money in in jury trials when you, you have a personal injury case or something. And the analogy is, well, what would you do? You know, you, people, I, I, you know, I flew down to, um, I flew last week. I had a trip I had to make and I got an email that said, can you swap out your flight? We'll give you $300. I'm like, $300 is great, but that's no way. Is it worth it to me? Cause I have all this stuff I have to do. I had to get down on time to take care of what I had to take care of. Right. And I had to get back to, to get back to work up here. Um, and that's a silly example, but if you start to play it out, how much was it worth to be humiliated that way, to be beaten like that, to go through that uh, while you're in prison? And to be and scared you while you continue to serve your sentence. And you can't, you can't, you can't call it. family members. And then right after you're beaten, you're accused of of you being the violator of rules and you're put in, in uh, solitary or you're given other disciplinary action. And so there's two elements to it. There's that element, which is, I think a significant amount of money to each of these individuals. And you have to have a deterrent effect. You have to tell the state 
You have to police these officers. You cannot let them do this. And the only way that you can do that is to impose a significant financial penalty on them. So and in my mind, I'm not going to put a figure on it. Um, I, I think we asked uh, for a million dollars per person. Uh, and in my mind, that's not enough. Yeah, it doesn't seem enough. But it, it is um, uh, it, it's, and it's not like the beating wasn't about hurting people. It was about the humiliation. The lawsuit well, like when, is going to end up with money, right. but it's not it's about like a the wrongful money. killing. The money will never be enough, right? Like right. it's it's well, the but, money but will it, never truly measure. Um, you have you to know, give the give pain. the you know what I want. You know what I want to see happen from this. I want to see the inmates get back their dignity. I want to see the guards being uh, uh, remorseful and understanding what happened. I'd like to see this brought about uh, to brought to a conclusion in a way where the the respect human respect is restored how's that how much money is that going to be because we and, uh, and why don't correction emergency reaction team members wear body cameras or do they they they, they don't uh, my information and I'm, I'm looking into this more is that there are um maybe a, a couple thousand body worn cameras in circulation throughout state correctional facilities as sort of like a, a pilot um, program. Um, but I mean, Sing Sing, there are no cameras. Um, are there no um, cameras inside of like the hallway corridors of Sing Sing? That's insane. The only, place, the only place there are cameras are in the visiting room. But like now Attica, for instance, Attica had cameras installed a couple of years ago after a trial where a number of correction officers were convicted. And my understanding is that violence in that prison has gotten better. Cameras work. I mean, people commit less so, crime in front of a camera. I, be, I behave myself on this show. You know? <laughs> I mean, some of the officers, they'll just take them into the shower then if they want to beat them. I mean, you know, right. there's only so much you can control, but body worn right. cameras would, I think, would help. Even that would corroborate that an individual, you know, took someone down this hallway to this section. I mean, just any, any camera angle. Look, I hate our world of Big Brother. I want to return to the land of no cell phones, no proof. <laughs> um, uh, we, we, we got 20 seconds left or thereabouts. It, sorry, finish your thought. Danielle, amazing work. I'm so happy that you were entrusted with these stories and that this firm, Bruce, everyone took the case on. And I pray for the best outcome for them and the best outcome for the system going forward. Well, thanks for thanks for letting me uh, talk about it, and um, I'm glad we're on the same team here, guys. Hopefully, we can um, hold some people big, accountable. Enough big cases. We need other guests. We'll <laughs> see you all next week on Crime and Justice Radio. Talk to you later. Take care. The views and opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of this station, JVC Broadcasting Management, or its sponsors.